You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So again, it'll be about what's called the presidential daily brief, and David will explain to us exactly what that is. But the presidential daily brief, going back to my days in the agency, was something you barely talked about. It was a very secret document that went only to the president, and uh, those of us who were in operations and so forth knew very little about it. And so my, question, my first question to you is, what led you to write about a subject so arcane that you might not even be able to see copies of it. Sure. It, it, it struck me as odd that here's this daily document going to the President of the United States across decades that is talked about in their memoirs, that they mention when they give press conferences, and yet within the intelligence community the feeling is we do not talk about the President's daily brief. There was a disconnect there. And there was plenty of information out there on the President's daily brief, the most famous coming after 9-11 when the 9-11 Commission revealed what a President's Daily Brief article looked like having to do with terrorism before 9-11. And yet no one had pulled together all these disparate pieces, the quotes from the presidential memoirs, the press statements that had been made, how presidents used this book, and the differences across administrations. And it struck me that that's a story that can be told the right way. The interesting thing, there's a story in the book about talking to some of the people who worked on the PDB 30, 40 years ago and how they'd been told by their managers and others in the intelligence field, you can't talk about this, even to people outside of CIA within the intelligence community. It's that secret. The words, President's Daily Brief, when used together, are classified. And the funny thing is, they said that Bob Gates, when he was director, declassified the existence of the PDB. I asked Bob Gates about it, and he laughed. He said, of course I didn't declassify it. I figured it was already declassified. There's something funny there about the impression that it's so secret and the fact that the existence of this daily book going to the president is not secret. And the contents, that's a different matter. Okay. You and I are both throwing these terms around, President's Daily Brief, PDB. Could you give the folks sort of a precise understanding of what we're talking about here? Sure. Every day, the analysts historically at the Central Intelligence Agency, now including other elements of the intelligence community, produce for the president a book. And it has in it cutting edge analysis and interpretation of world events based on clandestine collection from a variety of sources, human intelligence, communications intercepts, satellite imagery, but also open sources. Pulling all that information together to give the president what they assess the president needs to know that day about something going on in the world. It might be a crisis. It might be a pending coup. It might be a longer term issue. Mr. President, you need to be aware of this dynamic because we still have the ability to affect it now. Here's what you need to know. And each day this book is compiled with several different articles about different places around the world. Its format and its delivery style have changed over the decades. That's where a lot of the rich stories in the book come from. But the message is still the same. It's trying to tell truth to power, trying to get objective, timely, and hopefully accurate analysis of world events to the President of the United States and whomever the President designates can also receive it, usually just a handful of people. You know, one of the things I was very impressed with was the amount of research that you did mm. to get at this subject. And I think it'd be interesting to share that with the audience so we know sure. when we're listening to you what we're hearing, what sources we're hearing from. Right. Although I had experience with the President's Daily Brief 
uh, my stories are boring compared to the wider sweep of history. So the book is not a memoir. It's a book from the words of those who use the PDB the most. So I interviewed all of the living former presidents, all of the living former vice presidents, the vast majority of former directors of central intelligence, secretaries of state and defense, national security advisors, White House chiefs of staff, all the people who regularly had access to this document when so many other people, even within the White House and the CIA, did not. So a lot of the information came directly from the people who were handing off the book, the briefers, the presidents who were reading it, and then the top policy officials who had to act based on what the president saw in the book. I supplemented that with some documentary research, going to places like the presidential libraries and digging through the files for information there that's been declassified. The National Archives has some sources as well. The CIA, remarkably, has declassified millions of documents, especially from the era before the 1980s. Millions of documents that make reference to how the PDB was planned, how it was used, the reception of some of it in meetings that CIA officers went to. This great, gave great insight into how this document has evolved and developed over the years. You know, periodically we've heard people say, often from the White House, and I'm not going to cite sources because I can't recall any names, well, I didn't hear anything more than I read in the New York Times this morning. Mm -hmm. And of course, the purpose of the PDB is not necessarily to reflect what's in the time, but in the New York Times, but give the president the very latest right. intelligence. Mm -hmm. From time to time, that may correspond with something that's in the New York Times. Right. Sometimes the best intelligence comes from open sources. Different presidents have treated their book differently, and we'll talk about some different aspects of that as we go on. But one aspect is how much of this book needs to be only secrets and how much of it needs to be a full view of what's going on in the world. If it's news about an election, in a country in Western Europe, chances are the press is pretty good on that. Clandestine sources may not add that much, and therefore the President's Daily Brief might be mostly about open sources. On the other hand, if you're talking about decision-making in a place like North Korea, the chances of you getting everything you need from open sources are dim. You're going to need to get some more of that secret intelligence in the book, so that's one of the great variances. Some of the people who received the book, especially the non-presidents, that is the people who read it while the president was getting the book, but a secretary of state or a national security advisor, several of them did tell me, you know, I often thought most days it wasn't that much better than the New York Times. Or in some cases, I thought the New York Times was better. Well, that depends on the story. That depends on what they're doing with it. I'm not going to deny any of them that interpretation. But there's also some things in there that they would only get from there. You're not going to see some human collection in the New York Times in the same sense that you see it in the PDB. Yeah. Not to give the New York Times too much publicity, we never saw producing the PDB as racing with CNN. Mm -hmm. Once CNN came on the, the, the uh, scene, you, know, they, you would get a TikTok or a play-by-play all through the day, whether it was like in the Paris right. uh, terrorist attacks and so forth. We never saw the role of intelligence as necessarily being neck and neck to beat CNN. It was to try and give a different kind of take on what's going on in the exactly world. Exactly right. The, the purpose of the Daily Book isn't to give a tutorial to the president mm -hmm. about facts on the ground. That may be the case if those facts can only be determined through clandestine means. But the primary purpose of the president's Daily Brief is to give insight to the president. What are the dynamics underlying this foreign leader's decision? What's actually going on that might be different than it appears? That comes from analysis. That comes from assessment. That is not necessarily a fact. That is an interpretation. And that's been the goal of the PDB from its beginning, to compile these sources, not to just give a data dump of information, but to say, what does this information mean for a decision that's likely to come on the president's agenda? It's a different goal. Right. You mentioned uh, uh, in talking a few minutes ago, speaking truth to power, yeah. and that the, inf the intelligence needed to be timely, objective. In speaking to all of your sources, former presidents, national security advisors, and others, did you run across any sense that any of them felt in any way that it was some, I don't want to say cooked, that information was cooked, but that was sort of written in a way to support the president's policies, that, that the intelligence community was hedging its views because of what we were doing, fighting a war in Vietnam or something of that nature? Generally, quite the opposite is more often I had people tell me that they would read things in the President's Daily Brief that were not convenient for policy. The policy says we're going to move forward on this front, and the intelligence says uh -uh, the, the facts that support that aren't there. In fact, we're seeing something different. Uh, that 
explains Vietnam. There was a lot of reporting in Vietnam that was not going along with the president's policies. Uh, that explains more recently after the invasion of Iraq. The PDB was presenting a steady drumbeat to the president of news saying this, this insurgency is not going well. The policy is not working well based on the intelligence we're seeing on the ground. And yet what did presidents do? Generally, presidents said, keep it coming. They did not say that's not supporting our policies. We don't want it. They might not like reading it, but they understood that that was uh, meant to help them to make better policy and to get it out there. In the cases where people complained about the contents of the president's daily brief to me, more often it was, I wanted more. I wanted even more insight. I was hoping that they could tell me exactly where this person is in some random third world capital. But Bill Clinton was one of those. He said he was frustrated because it didn't give him all that he wanted to know. I get that. You're the President of the United States. You think everybody should be able to collect that information. But he also had an insight on that to say, but I understood that's not information that's always available. Sometimes you'll get that information later. But it did help him to remind the intelligence community, I want more on this, because then they could marshal their resources against that target more effectively. Yeah. And there was a famous story, I'm sure you're familiar with it, of, of former Director Helms mm -hmm. uh, briefing President Nixon on, I think, the course of the Vietnam War and concluding with his personal views that the war was not going well. And my understanding is he was never invited back to see the president again. I think it would be very interesting to hear some of the individual president's reaction. How did the PDB start? Sure, the, the PDB started under a different name. Back in the 1960s when John F. Kennedy became president, he could not sit still for briefings. And so they started handing him a large stack of intelligence documents from the CIA, from the State Department, from the Pentagon, from everywhere. And one point he said to one of his advisors looking at this stack, do I have to read it all? Clearly this was not going to work for him. And so one of his advisors called in two CIA officers and asked them to create for the president's purposes, based on his personality and style, develop a document that would give him only what he needed to know in colloquial, comfortable style rather than bureaucratic language. And something without all the classification markings and other gobbledygook that comes with government documents. They did it. They turned it around, and within a couple of days, he was reading a prototype of it, and he liked it. That one was called the President's Intelligence Checklist. But when Lyndon Johnson became president, it evolved into the President's Daily Brief, the name that has continued up through President Obama today. President Johnson interacted with it quite a bit, got, it, got a lot of play out of it. Sometimes he read it in bed at night. And this shows an important point about the President's Daily Brief. It is tailored in its delivery and its production to the personality of the president that it serves. Lyndon Johnson liked to do a lot of work in bed at night. So the PDB was changed. Instead of delivering every morning, as it usually has been, the PDB was sent to the White House late in the afternoon so that he could read it in bed at night. He later went back to reading it in the morning, but it makes the point that it is the president's book. The president wants it at night, he'll get it at night. If the president wants it in the form of interpretive dance, there's gonna, there's gonna be a whole lot of intelligence officers learning how to dance. Maybe a euphemism when you say he could read it in bed, because my recollection is that Johnson would occasionally take briefings when he was sitting in the bathroom. I've, yeah. I've, I've heard that story as well, and I did not want the details. <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned uh, that uh, JFK uh, had trouble sitting still. Mm -hmm. You're talking about his physical situation, that, that it was difficult for him to sit for long periods. I think it was on, on two fronts. One, yeah. the physical condition, but also his advisors said that he was constantly trying to get into new ideas, constantly trying to move to the next topic. And they maybe physically could get him to sit still sometimes, but he was so excited about some other meeting or he had an idea and he wanted to go chase that down that they could not get him to focus for long periods of time. Therefore, having a document as the original President's Intelligence Checklist was designed, something that was small enough that he could fold it put it into his suit pocket, and carry it around with him during the day. That way, if he was interested in something, he could read it for two minutes, he'd have that idea that he wanted to go run after, and then an hour later, he could pull it out and read it again when he had a break in his day. So they designed it for his personality for that purpose. Other presidents, not so much. Richard Nixon delivered every morning to the White House. The funny thing was, it got there the night before because of a man named Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, didn't want things going to the president that he hadn't seen, even the objective president's daily brief. So what did he do? He told the CIA to deliver it the night before. One of his advisors pointed out to him, you realize that's going to introduce a 16 or 17 hour delay in the information the president sees in the morning. Kissinger said fine. That was the price that had to be paid for him being on top of the information that went to the president. 
I think you made a similar comment about uh, Dr. Brzezinski, mm -hmm. that he did not, he wanted to see the brief before or instead of the president. Right. Now, in that case, it at least was the same morning. Dr. Brzezinski, the national security advisor for President Jimmy Carter, uh, he delivered the president's daily brief uh, as part of the national security briefing each morning. Now, usually the president, Jimmy Carter, saw it in advance. He would read it, and then he would talk with his national security advisor about it. But the interesting thing about that one is there was still a director of central intelligence, and this was Stansfield Turner. And when he came into office, he figured out, wait a minute, the president is reading this document every day, and it's our document, and I'm the president's chief intelligence advisor. Shouldn't I be giving him his intelligence briefing every morning? So he went to the White House and talked with the National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, about this. And Brzezinski said, mm, you have a point. But then he went over to the president's schedule where it said intelligence briefing. He crossed it out and wrote national security briefing. And from that point on, the National Security Advisor just incorporated the document into the national security briefing. And the issue, as far as he was concerned, was resolved. <clears throat> One of the uh, views that we take, have taken in later years, is that the PDB, the presentation of the very presentation of the PDB to the president by the head of the, the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence, provided the president an opportunity to give us direct feedback right. on what was satisfying him, what was not satisfying him, what were his open questions, what he'd like us to walk on. That was an invaluable feedback loop for the agency at the time. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if the folks you interviewed commented on that aspect or not. Absolutely. That, that was a big part of it is through one means or another, the intelligence community had to get feedback on what was working for the president and wasn't. Not in terms of the content. Not in terms of don't tell me bad news about okay. this because that is the duty of the intelligence community to tell the president bad news. But in terms of the respective coverage of different areas of the world, in terms of the length of analysis, should it be a long paper of many pages or should it be just one paragraph? What does the president need? That's something that feedback is necessary. If you have a briefer in the room, as Gerald Ford did for his first year in office, a CIA working level officer talking about the PDB to the president. If you have a briefer in the room like he did, like George H.W. Bush did for all four years of his term, like George W. Bush did for all eight years of his terms, then you get that directly. That officer can come right back to CIA headquarters and say, this is what the president did with this today. This is how he reacted to what he was reading. If you don't have that, you have to have another mechanism for it. The mechanism traditionally has been the national security advisor or whoever does sit with the president and talk about the intelligence. You hope, and it's in their, probably in their best interest to do so, you hope that they pass on any feedback to the Central Intelligence Agency unfiltered. In some cases, what happens is the president writes on the PDB itself, and a copy of that is given back to the agency to look at and to get feedback. That was President Carter's style. He met with Dr. Brzezinski every day when Stainsfield-Turner was shut out. But on his PDB copy itself, he would write in the margins, he would circle things, he would ask questions, and then a copy of that would get back to the agency so that they would figure out what the president really needs. No, oh, it's solid gold for the analysts Absolutely. and the folks at the agency. You know, there's always the uh, apocryphal stories about Reagan working mostly from three by five cards right. and not, not doing a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. That was not what you mm -hmm. gleaned from the sources you talked to about yeah. Reagan's processing of the PDB. Yeah, the mythology has it that Ronald Reagan wasn't much of a reader at all, mm -hmm. certainly not of top yeah. secret intelligence. We can debunk that myth, and we can do that for a couple of reasons. One is Reagan's own diaries, published fully after his death, show many comments in there about the PDB that he was reading. And he would read it alone in many cases, but he would remark on things that were in there. The other way we know is because we have a CIA historian who went into the vaults of these still classified copies of the President's Daily Brief from the Reagan era. He went through the first thousand or so of them, one by one, looking through them. And he found all kinds of marks in there. Not every day, not on every item, but enough underlines, brackets, exclamation points, in some cases, <clears throat> calculations in the margin of numbers that appeared in these analysis. And Sometimes you would actually have questions in there saying, Didn't, isn't this different than what I read on the previous page? Not the things that you would see of somebody who was not reading the document at all. Interesting. <clears throat> well, you mentioned the use of interpretive dance uh, in briefing the president. Uh, it, my recollection is on several occasions, 
uh, we actually uh, uh, produced some films mm -hmm. by way of briefing President Reagan, particularly on foreign leaders. Yes. Did you run across any traces of that? Yes, there, there's some evidence that this started even earlier. There's evidence that Richard Nixon received a film on Brezhnev, one of the Soviet leaders. Gerald Ford may have. Jimmy Carter certainly received some videos. And then Reagan appeared to take to them really well, which makes sense as someone familiar with the entertainment industry and film from his own career. What these things tended to do was supplement the analysis. They did not replace the president's daily mm -hmm. brief. But what they did is they added a different way of telling the story. And what Reagan found most useful in them, according to the notes in his diary, were when it introduced him to a foreign leader. If he's going to be meeting with somebody, yes, you can read a piece of paper that tells you that person's education, their background, their personality. Or you can watch a video of how they interact with other people. And for Reagan, that gave him great insight yes. into the person that he would be interacting with in turn. Videos have been a nice supplement to the PDB over, over the years, but it really depends on what the purpose is. If you're trying to show what a leader is like, how charismatic a speaker he is, show a video. Putting that in words defeats the purpose of the medium itself. Yeah. So Reagan was not entirely wrong by following the movies to nope. learn about current history. One of the uh, remarkable stories you tell is about the, uh, <clears throat> again, the PDB represents the views of the community, right. not just CIA. Yeah, and that has changed over time. Back in the day, the okay. CIA monopolized <clears throat> the PDB and often got inputs from other agencies but was not required to. The rest of the intelligence community couldn't even see it. They didn't even know what the president was getting in most cases. In, in recent years, that has changed. The president's daily brief is a document of the wider intelligence community and has been for more than 10 years now. As such, it is fully coordinated across the intelligence community. Anybody in the intelligence community, even outside of the CIA, can write for the president's daily brief. The briefers who take it to customers downtown, the president and those he designates to receive it, those briefers can come from anywhere in the intelligence community. So that has been a change from the way that it was previously. It always incorporated information from across the intelligence community. The big difference is who is the one writing it up and delivering it. Right. It's also gotten broader distribution over the years. Right. Has it not? Yeah, that's had an ebb and flow. At the beginning, uh, John F. Kennedy, he got his president's intelligence checklist, and the National Security Advisor saw it, and a couple of aides. No one else saw it. The Secretary of State didn't see it. The Secretary of Defense didn't see it. And yet Kennedy was out there giving orders based on it. So they corrected that pretty quickly yeah. and realized the document does little good if it goes to the president, because the president does not actually enact foreign policy. He sets strategic direction. So they got it within six months to those two secretaries. But somebody they never got it to was the vice president. So Lyndon Johnson comes into office one day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He has no idea the president's intelligence checklist even exists. It was an awkward moment for John McCone, the director of CIA that morning, who had to go in to brief him and introduce him to this document, which Johnson was no dummy. It was probably pretty clear to him that he had been kept out of the loop on this. And maybe that's why he never took to that document itself. You told a somewhat similar story about President, uh, who was then Vice President Ford, right. had not been brought in uh, right. on that process by President, that was then President Nixon. Nixon. Right. Yeah, that's another case of a very tight dissemination of the PDB. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, whom we mentioned earlier, kept it very tight, such that Gerald Ford becomes Vice President. He's not brought into the PDB loop. But the Director of Central Intelligence at the time, Bill Colby, invited Ford out for a series of briefings and presentations at CIA headquarters. During a break from these meetings, he walks him through a tour of some offices, including the Office of Current Intelligence, the group at CIA which produced the PDB and other intelligence analysis. And as they're walking through, there just happens to be a copy of the President's Daily Brief sitting on the table. <coughs> Ford notices it, says, what's that? Why, that's the President's Daily Brief. That's the document that goes to the President and Dr. Kissinger every morning. Would you like to see it? Why, sure. And that led to a pattern whereby a CIA officer, Dave Peterson, I tell his story in the book, he went to Ford's house in Alexandria, Virginia every morning to talk to him about the PDB at his kitchen table or sometimes in the car downtown. And then when he became president, Ford, despite the advice of his advisors to trim back his schedule, he said, no, I'm keeping this. And the first item of business he had every day was sitting with Dave Peterson in his office talking directly about the PDB. So the agency has, in fact, run operations against the president in order to get the <laughs> That's PDB your interpretation, in front of not mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of the, uh, I think, remarkable stories you tell is the briefing that I think it was President Johnson was giving mm -hmm. about the possibility of the uh, war uh, in the Middle East, the, the, uh, what yeah. became. The yeah, with, with the tale of two Middle East wars in 1967, yes. the yes. Six-Day War, 
the CIA predicted in its intelligence documents before it even started, saying, you know, this war, uh, we don't think it'll last longer than seven days. And it became known as the Six-Day War. Pretty good analysis. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, 1973, Richard Nixon is president, and Egypt and Syria and Israel, there's a lot of tension going on, a lot of serious military exercises uh, in Egypt, on the Egyptian side of the border. The analysis going to the president one morning was, these Egyptian military exercises are the most realistic we've ever seen, but we don't anticipate any threat to Israel. At the time that the president was reading it, Egypt was invading Israel. It was a complete, total, embarrassing failure, which led to one of many re-examinations of intelligence, looking back to see what could we do better with, with the book. Yeah. You call it a book. It, yeah. was a, is it, is, it is, in fact, in the form of a notebook. Yeah. Uh, that, has, that has changed yeah. over time, too. Sometimes it's just been spiral-bound at the top. You'll see a lot of pictures in the book where you can see the president holding something with a spiral at the top. And that, that's been common. Sometimes it's been bound on the side. For President George W. Bush, he wanted much more late-breaking information, often raw intelligence reports, put into this book. So they changed it to a three-ring binder. And literally, as the briefer was running out the door, you could put in a new report so that the president would get something that was immediate instead of something that had to go to a printing plant and be bound. The biggest change is with this administration. Barack Obama no longer gets ink on paper. He gets electrons on a screen. He gets his president's daily brief on an iPad. Now, it's a very special iPad. <laughs> sure, it's a little bit different than the one we play with at home, but it's a different way of getting the information to him in a format that works for him, the theme of the book across the decades. Yeah. The agency, in fact, had thought of doing something like the iPad mm -hmm. 20 years or so before, as yeah. I recall. I couldn't believe it. I was digging through the, the files, I think, at the Nixon Library, and there was a document from 1970 which showed that a consultant to the National Security Council proposed to Henry Kissinger you know, we could do this thing with the PDB where we, we, we put some words up on a monitor and we have this thing called a keyboard and you can see one line from the piece and you can press a button if you want a longer story and then if you really want more, you can press another button and it'll give you page after page and then if you have any questions about it, you can type in a question to the analyst who wrote it. And that memo went to Kissinger. Kissinger essentially gave it a pocket veto. He didn't act on it at all. And I asked him about that. I pull out this memo and I say, hey, by the way, you got this in 1970. Totally unfair of me, by the way. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. And I'm asking him for his recollections of something that happened 40 plus years ago. But I show him the memo and I said, this was proposed to you. Why didn't you act on it? And he just chuckled. He said, I wouldn't have even known what a computer was at that point. It wouldn't have worked for us. <clears throat> the, uh, quite remarkably, um, when was your book actually published? Last month. Okay, I mean, it's gotten some terrific reviews. You've been very fortunate. And yet, what is it, just last September mm -hmm. of 15, right. the CIA released 2,500 PDBs at a conference held, uh, sponsored by the University of Texas at Austin right. and the LBJ Library. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at those, sure. in, in other words, in the light of your book. With, right. with the, yeah, the funny thing about studying the PDB is you, you get the stories from the presidents, the vice presidents, the CIA directors, the briefers who are in the Oval Office, and they tell you a whole lot about how the PDB is used, but most of the PDB's content remains classified. It's like telling the story of a black hole. You can't see inside of it. I mean, scientists know a whole lot about black holes by what's in orbit around it, and that's more what, what this is. But there have been a smattering throughout the decades of some issues of the PDB or some particular analyses within that have been declassified. And, and those, all of those that are available are in the book. Then the CIA last fall, as the book is going to publication, decides we're going to open up everything from the Kennedy and Johnson era, with something about around 80% of the material being shown to the public, about 20% remaining redacted or, or blacked out because the sources and methods still pertain. I looked through those and I found it did not fundamentally change anything in the story. It gave a lot more examples for historians. If you're interested in what was going on in Laos in 1963, you've got a treasure trove of material. If you're really interested in what's going on in the Congo in the late 60s, you've got a whole lot of material. For the purpose of telling the story of every president since John Kennedy and how they used the book, putting in 50 pages about the Congo in 1967 would have been a real downer. So I decided not to include the information, but I definitely looked at it to see whether there was anything in there that fundamentally changed our view of the PDB during the Johnson era or the Kennedy era before him, and, and it had not. But what I expect to see coming forward is a whole lot of dissertations in graduate programs on intelligence and national security taking advantage 
of this specific information that was going to the president every morning across the decades. And this is a continuing process, by the way. Later this year, my understanding is the Ford and Nixon PDBs will be released in the same fashion. <coughs> we'll see a whole lot of information coming out on a rolling basis. Nothing remains classified forever. And this was apparently the CIA's way with the cooperation of the intelligence community overall and of historians involved in it to say, what can we release to give us more insight into our own history? Well, I don't know what we have here by way of graduate students who may be taking a note on you know possible, yeah. possible subject. Uh, I think, obviously, there are a lot of people interested here in the workings of government, and I sure. think attending this kind of presentation is important. You've had a unique opportunity to speak to a number of very senior people who served at the highest levels of government. Mm -hmm. And I think we are probably unique as a country in making so much of what we have told our most senior leaders, mm -hmm. the president and his advisors, about what was going on in the world. In speaking to those folks, you must have developed some sense of how they thought and think government works. Does the system work? I think that, that's, that's often raised. Is the president getting the right information? Does it go forward? What happened? I mean, you've got this big intelligence community. How does that work? Is it an overweening bureaucracy? And so I think the sense of government, and, and in fact, you've been in government yourself, right. so you have your own view. Right. But what did, you, what did you develop as a view after you had done your research? Yeah, what, what I learned from the people who mattered most for the president's daily brief, starting with the president's, is simply how much they appreciated it, almost at a human level. They weren't blind to the amount of bureaucratic work that goes into this, from the collection of the information, from the, the human intelligence collectors overseas, to the technology, to the production of this book, to the delivery of it. They understand that a lot of effort goes into it. And, and to a person, they, they seem to appreciate what it gave them that others could not. You have to remember that every other institution in the United States government has a policy agenda. The State Department has policy proposals, and they want the president to back those. The Defense Department, similarly. The, the CIA explicitly created to be an objective source of information outside of the actual policy implementation process. They seem to appreciate that. And in fact, that's why George H.W. Bush agreed to write the foreword for the book. He didn't do it to write anything about me, and not really much about the President's Daily Brief itself. He used the foreword to thank the people who produced the book for him. He was CIA director, he was vice president, he was president, the only person to hold all three positions. And he just wanted to say thanks to the people who rarely get credit for what they do to try to give the President an objective and timely take on world affairs without an ax to grind. That was the general take I got from most people sure. I talked to. As I <clears> mentioned, <throat> several people thought, I wish it had more. I really thought the CIA knew everything. <laughs> they found out pretty quickly, no, the CIA yeah. doesn't know everything. But what the CIA can do and what the President's Daily Brief routinely did is narrow the cone of uncertainty to say, you might think all of these things are possible right now. Really, we're seeing only this many are possible. That is an asset to any president. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, what I think I'd like to do, I've gotten to ask all the questions, and, and your answers have been very stimulating. Let's turn to the audience. I'm sure there's some questions here. There's one starting all the way on the back there. And uh, I would ask you to wait for the microphone so everyone can hear your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you give us an idea, and obviously it varied from president to president, is this a 10-page document, a 50-page document? I mean, obviously different people are going to want different amounts, and you learn that quickly. But I just want to get a sense of that. And my second quick question is, the fact that you're brilliant, handsome, articulate is Peter, important. Peter, right? Uh, um, is important, but how did you get all these people to talk to you? <laughs> let, let me answer the first question first, and then I'll get to that. It, the PDB... You know what, let me answer the second one, because I like the handsome, brilliant part. You know, I like to just focus <laughs> on like that. We like that part. Yes. I like to just focus on that. <clears throat> uh, I asked. That's as simple as it is. How did I get access to these people and get them to talk? I, I asked. I get the feeling most people don't ask, because they think, oh, it's too secret, they won't talk about it. Now, I'm not fooling myself. I also did my homework. I did a lot of the archival research, the documents, to prove that I had looked into the details, but also to show that I did not have an ax to grind. Uh, when you read the book, you'll see it is not, it is not a polemic. Uh, I'm not going after anyone because of a bias or a political view. I'm trying to tell the no-kidding history that can be told. So therefore, when I went to them and described the project, they said, 
sure, you know, this, this is something I have access to that other people don't. And that sense of illuminating history came out from a lot of the presidents and the others that I talked to. Some of it was a snowball effect, which is once you talk to the CIA director from the administration and a few senior advisors, then you go to the national security advisor and you say, hi, you were national security advisor in this administration. I'd like to chat with you. They say, who have you talked to? Say, well, I've talked to this person and this person and that. Okay. And then you go to the Secretary of State from that administration. You say, I've talked to the National Security Advisor. I understand you, you had some different views during the administration. Wouldn't you like to get your views in the book? And, and suddenly they start cooperating. <laughs> then eventually you get to the Vice President or the President. And when you talk to them, I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, some of them have gatekeepers, uh, some of them don't. Uh, some of them are, are working, doing things after their government career, teaching at universities, things like that, and you can just contact them and say, hi, I'd like to chat, and, and, and they'll say yes or no. Many of them do have gatekeepers, and then your job is to show the gatekeepers that you're serious about this, and you want them to be able to tell their stories. You're not putting words in their mouth. And in that sense, it was often a case of showing the gatekeepers, here's some research I've done, but frankly, here's some people who will vouch for me. And if you've already interviewed the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, and the Vice President, getting the gatekeeper to a former president to say, <clears throat> yeah, he, he's no kidding serious about this, that's much easier when you've already lined that up. Okay, let's take some other questions and one right here, Amanda. Wonderful talk. I assume that you, the President's daily briefing is solely concerned with foreign intelligence. Right. To the best of your knowledge, does the President receive a comparable briefing on domestic matters. Right, let, let me modify your, your first statement. Uh, the President's Daily Brief, largely a book of foreign intelligence. And through most of its history, that <clears> is <throat> what it details. National security issues, analyzing foreign actors, foreign governments. There are a few exceptions. Uh, one of the cases in the book is when Lee Harvey Oswald suddenly pops up in the President's intelligence checklist right after the assassination as part of the declassification effort of so many things related to the assassination. Uh, that came out that here's a U.S. citizen being talked about in the President's daily brief. Very rare. In fact, it's not until after September 11th that the PDB starts shifting and incorporating national security threats and information from across the foreign and domestic divide. And that makes sense if you think about it. 9-11 was a plot that reached across borders to have this daily document going to the President that does not could do a disservice to the President. In terms of whether there is a counterpart to the PDB on domestic affairs, I think it depends on what the issue is. If I'm White House Chief of Staff, chances are I'm giving the President every morning an agenda of what he's got going on that day with some explanation and assessment of why it matters, maybe supplemented by other things. But there isn't something that's a direct parallel. The domestic policies of the President cover so many things, from education and agriculture to politics to dealing with Congress. It's not the same as focusing in on foreign threats and opportunities to the United States as a national security issue. So I would doubt that there is a President's daily brief for domestic affairs. Don't fool yourself. The President is getting plenty of paper on all the decisions that he has to make on those issues, too. Thank David, you. at one point, the, uh, uh, the director of the FBI and of CIA were briefing yeah. the President together right. after 9-11. Right. And that was sort of, it wasn't the daily brief, but mm -hmm. it was a, a briefing from the top level of his domestic and foreign uh, intelligence agencies. That's right. At that point, after yeah. September 11th, the president would get his PDB briefing. And again, remember, George W. Bush yeah. received a CIA briefer every morning, along with usually the director of CIA. But he would get that briefing. And then after that every day, he would bring in his Homeland Security top team, the Homeland Security director, yeah. Yeah. the attorney general, the FBI director. So it was an extension of the PDB briefing, often continuing the discussion of the President's daily brief, but it was explicitly combining the foreign and the domestic when it came to national security issues. Okay. Uh, right there, Amanda, maybe, and then we'll come back over here. First of all, thank you for being here. It was very, very interesting. I can't read to read the book. Um, you mentioned early on that oftentimes the, the, the daily brief was contrary to maybe the President's policies sure. or whatever. How did they react to that oftentimes? Mm -hmm. Did they turn a blind eye to it? Did right. they embrace it? Did they change policy? Maybe right. you could talk about that. I, I will. Uh, in the older cases, that is, the presidents like Richard Nixon, uh, you, you'll see the story in the book. It's unclear whether Richard Nixon even read the PDB every day. And that's the one president that we really don't know. Kissinger, on the one hand, said, when I started working with Gerald Ford, it was great, because I knew he read the PDB every day, unlike Nixon, who ignored it. 
But then when I asked Kissinger about it, he said, no, I'm pretty sure Nixon read it every day. And he gave me some, some reasons why. And, and I find it hard to believe he wouldn't have read it. But we don't have the direct evidence, and we can't ask him. So we don't know what he did with the book and how he reacted. Did he, in fact, put some distance between himself and the analysts at CIA because the stuff he was reading disagreed with what he thought was going on? That's a possibility. Unfortunately, we don't know. I'll give you the opposite case. George W. Bush, after the invasion of Iraq, he starts getting analysis, a steady drumbeat of those articles saying, things in Iraq just aren't going well. Oh, and by the way, like we told you yesterday, things aren't going well. And the next day, oh, did we mention things aren't going well? After a while, it's very easy, just as a human being, to imagine a president saying, I don't want to read this anymore. Uh, George Bush took it in the opposite direction. Instead of pushing the intelligence away because he wanted things to be going better, he actually brought in more intelligence officers. He started a process in his second term, which came to be called the Deep Dives, where intelligence analysts, primarily from CIA, but across the intelligence community, would come in to talk with him and his senior advisors about specific aspects of intelligence that he wanted to dig deeper on. And he would spend a lot of time with this. In the first 18 months of doing it, more than 200 analysts had come in to talk with him on top of the president's daily brief, carving out schedule in the president's time to do that. So that's a case of somebody getting what you might call bad news, but deciding I need more intelligence to help me out rather than less intelligence to stop reminding me of it. It's hard to say, and this is one of the troublesome things about researching the president's daily brief, is trying to find out what the actual policy impact of reading this was versus reading it and talking to advisors versus talking to advisors later in the day and maybe deeply informed by that. We just don't have, probably can't get that raw data unless you have a camera on the president and somehow insight into the president's mind 24-7. In many cases, some stories are in the book of where people read the PDB and took action on it that day. That, in that case, that's easy. Many other cases, it is that black hole. Thank you for a fascinating presentation, gentlemen. It's very interesting. My question is, uh, in your research, who made the most effective use of the PDB, and can you give an example? I'd love to. Uh, I'll give the example of the man who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, George, George H.W. Bush. He brought in, as I mentioned, he brought in a briefer when he was in Washington every working day for his entire term, which took it up a step from where Gerald Ford had done it. He had only done it for his first uh, year in office. That gave him the ability to do two things. One, he could engage the briefing in much greater depth. He could ask the briefer questions. He could ask them for the deeper story, the stuff that didn't make it onto the printed page, but was left on the cutting room floor back at CIA headquarters. The briefers who briefed him had to be prepared. They had to be prepared because they had a national security team that was no kidding experienced on this with a president who had been vice president for eight years, with a national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, who had been national security advisor for Gerald Ford with people in the room, including Bob Gates, as Deputy National Security Advisor, who had also been a senior agency officer for years. These briefers had to be on their game. And they said it was an exhilarating experience having the President of the United States knowing that he was going to get on the phone with that foreign leader right after this briefing to have that in-depth conversation about what's driving that foreign leader and how are you going to move things forward. It also gave him the ability, and the second side, is it made him comfortable enough with the intelligence that he could have a little fun with it. One of the stories in the book is the time that he read the analysis in the book that an election in Nicaragua was going to go for Daniel Ortega, the Sandinista leader who, frankly, controlled all the institutions of state power. The analyst predicted he's going to win this first open election they're having. The president read the piece, looked at his briefer, said, I don't think so. I'll bet you an ice cream cone that you're wrong. Now, you're the briefer. You're in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. He wants to bet you an ice cream cone. You take the wager. So he defends the analysis, explains why the analysts feel that way, takes the wager. The next day, brings in an ice cream cone, because the President was right. The analysis was wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Right, there's one right here, Amanda, and then right, one right over from it. Thanks for all your great work. I get the impression the daily briefing had a lot of facts and data. You mentioned an example of a uh, forecast or prediction of a seven-day war that took six days in 1967. I also infer from what you've said that the daily briefing stayed away from specific recommendations. Could you comment on that? Yeah, there's a difference between the assessments and analysis in the book and policy recommendations, and that is a very, very red line 
hate to use that phrase, but a red line for analysts to realize we don't cross that line. Assess what the foreign actor is thinking. Assess what the foreign actor is doing. Try to put together a picture, this mosaic, based on very limited information and fill in the gaps. That, that's all part of the job. That's the responsibility and the ethics of intelligence analysis. As soon as you cross that line to say, and here's what you should be doing about it, you're venturing out of your territory. That's for the president, the national security advisor, the secretary of state, and others to do. The job of objective intelligence analysis is to describe the lay of the land, to narrow that cone of uncertainty, so that de good decisions can be made, hopefully, but not to suggest what decision be made. That's the difference. Now, when it comes to how useful it is to help make those decisions, that varies. I found some evidence of some PDBs back from the 1960s where the colloquial loose language was so vague that I can't imagine it helping the president. Things like, the Chinese leader is saying this, we doubt it will amount to much. And that was it. No explanation, no details, no facts. Now there's a much more robust process for producing the president's daily brief based on the lessons of things like the Iraq WMD case, 9-11 itself. And hopefully 50 years of working on a book like this has some institutional effort that improves the product over time such that I doubt something like, we doubt it will amount to much, would appear in today's PDB. I think there would be a, a more robust answer with some logic and argumentation behind it, as well as clarity about the reliability and quality of the source information getting into the product. All right. I think there was one just right over here, Amanda. Yeah, just down. Um, obviously, producing the PDP daily is going to be a massive task with diverse issues from, from all corners of the world, bottlenecks and intelligence and stuff like that. Um, what's the kind of very nuts and bolts process and timeline for delivering or producing that PDP each day. Does one person own it on a 24-hour cycle, or is it a, a three-day aim-off that's, that's held by one person at different stages? Right. The, thank you. The information that, that people gave me about its evolution over time is that that has varied. The general model has been you have to give the president what he needs to know that morning, or briefly for Lyndon Johnson, that night. Therefore, it can be breaking news. It can be we just got this report in and you need to know it. Certainly before 24-7 media around the world getting things in quickly, that was the case. But it could also be we understand you have a policy meeting coming up, that you're going to be talking to your advisors later this week on overall policy toward Latin America. Here are some pieces to get you thinking about those dynamics. And those don't have a quick deadline. And those might have been planned weeks or months in advance to get into the book. It goes back to the question from earlier about how long is the president's daily brief. That has varied by president. There are some cases of the declassified ones from John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson that have been one page. They decided all the president really needed to know that day were these two or three stories which could fit on one page. And then there are cases of dozens of pages where there's the main analysis and then maybe some supplemental papers that are longer. And I think that hooks back to what you asked because if your research and your feedback from the president tells you this is what the president needs now, and he will carve out time to do it, you can get away with a 30-page PDB. Most of the time, the president's schedule, which is measured in minutes, does not have the ability for anything superfluous. And you're going to find that more often it's probably in the single pages rather than in the tens or dozens. Yeah. OK. One or two more. I've got oh, one, one in the right back. there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, great talk, David. Um, so you've, you've touched on, glancingly, on a couple aspects of the question I wanted to ask, but I wanted to see if I could draw you out a little bit. Um, one of the things that really struck me when I looked at the Kennedy and Johnson PDBs, uh, PDB articles, was that they tend to be very short right. and almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely repertorial. Mm -hmm. Here's what the reporting said, right. bam, bam, bam. Um, uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, I wrote for the PDB from time to time. I know I'm not alone in the room in that regard. Um, and in my day, and, and everybody knows publicly who, who cares to, having seen the, the article from August 6, 2001, that these days pieces tend to be longer, not long, but longer, and are much less directly repertorial and much more about underlying dynamics and trends and future scenarios and that sort of thing. Do you have any sense of why and how that transition happened? Right. You, you've nailed the general trend right, but there are counterexamples. Going back into the documents from the 60s, occasionally you'll find two or three pages on one topic that's put into the PDB for President Johnson, for example. And there have been several presidents who have formatted their PDB in such a way that they have those longer pieces of a page or two. Thinking of that as long tells you just how tight the president's time frame is. 
but having a longer piece of a page or two. But then often they would have a page of just single bullets, of one-liners, little highlights, snowflakes dropped into the PDB as opposed to the blizzard on the pages that, that followed. That has varied by president, and I have a feeling that's the evolution of the president's style. The president reads it for a while, his advisors notice, ah, he's getting a little bit cranky with this. And they say, what, what's happening? Oh, I'd really like to get shorter pieces. Or the president's really frustrated with this. He's asking more questions that should be answered in the book itself. Let's just put longer pieces in the book. I have a feeling that's how it evolved. A few stories in the book, you get that, that kind of interaction of getting to know the president. In the best of all possible worlds, that happens during the transition when traditionally the sitting president has allowed the president-elect to start reading the PDB even before he or she assumes office. That's good government, because that means that on January 20th, the president is coming in saying, huh, what, what's this book? And for a period of days, weeks, or months, reading something that does not actually work. Instead, there's this process during the transition of what works for this president? How can we adjust the president's daily brief so that when it becomes his or her book on January 20th, We've got something that actually works based on that individual style. Okay, Dr. David Priest, thank you very much for an absolutely you, fascinating Peter. presentation on this. Very, very Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.